this case kind of defied economic theory, free market economic theory. Here is Japan, a protectionist power, which according to um, the free market folks, um, should not develop and foster the most innovative competitive companies in the world. In the United States, which had open, fair competition and free trade, should have had more competitive marketplaces and more competitive, innovative firms, and it didn't. And so in part, the defiance of economic theory led President Reagan to adopt a different approach. Now, what, what, what happens? What are the implications of this? Well, one, very immediately, market share stabilizes for American firms. Um, their share begins to stabilize. They begin to, 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 to make pro some profit again. Not quite what they had before, but they're, they're coming back. It, it, it stabilizes. They take this time, this breathing room, to innovate. They launch joint ventures with certain Japanese firms. They try to adopt similar management techniques. Their cars become higher quality. They become safer. They become more fuel efficient. Um, they're able to retool and adapt. Um, and so, contra what Donald Reagan and others were saying, insulating them from some competition did not mean that they wanted to lose their competitive edge. They wanted to regain it. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it is just me again. I promise in the new year, you will get Nicholas Sawyer Solheim back. He is taking care of his baby girl, Margot, along with Evie in West Virginia, but working hard to make sure American Moment closes out the year very well. I am exceptionally grateful to him, as I've always been, for all of the work he does for us. Today, for this penultimate episode of Moment of Truth for season too. We had on a very good friend of mine. But before I get to that, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything that we have cooking as an organization, upcoming events, programs, the backlog of this show, Amcanon, our coalition of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and more, as well as a bunch of random stuff that we post. Again, the beauty of running your own organization is you can ultimately make it and the website that it has an assemblage of all of your private obsessions, and that is certainly what AmericanMoment.org is. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. As always, five stars really does help us in the rankings, especially in this, this dead zone where we're going to not be with you guys for at least one or two Mondays there in early January. It really does help us keep this show going. I want to see at least 150 ratings before I come back to tape season three please do make it happen today we had on a very good friend of mine wells king is research director of american compass whose mission is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family community and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity Previously, he worked as a policy advisor to Senator Mike Lee on the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee and as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company. His writing has appeared in The National Review, USA Today, First Things, The American Conservative, and The Daily Caller. He was a 2018 to 2020 Public Interest Fellow, a 2018 Claremont Institute Publius Fellow, a 2016 Hertog Foundation Political Studies Fellow. That means he has bingo. He's gotten all of them. Uh, and he holds a BA magna cum laude from Davidson College, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. He's a native North Carolinian. And he 
lives in Washington, D.C. Wells is one of the smartest young economic minds on the right of center. He has an exceptionally bright career ahead of him. We spent this episode talking about uh, a couple of his favorite bugaboos uh, oriented around some pieces he had written, specifically uh, a very interesting story. And Wells really is a fantastic storyteller about the American automobile and what Ronald Reagan did to save it in the 1980s and how it may chart a path for us to do it once more. Uh, NASCAR uh, from uh, something very near near and dear to his heart uh, from his native North Carolina, its cultural decline and what that may tell us about our economic decline as a country. And lastly, the thing that's going to get him and me in the most trouble in these coming years from the dead consensus in Washington, which is why conservatives should maybe have a slightly more heterodox approach to labor. We talk about all of that and much more. I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. Please listen all the way through to the end and let us know what you think. We'll go now to Wells King. Wells, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. As the penultimate episode of Moment of Truth for season two, we're, we're very excited to have you and it's been a long time overdue. Uh, your background is, I think, interesting and uh, in some ways informs your perspective on public policy issues. Why don't you tell people a little bit about where you came from and why? Sure. So I have, I think, a pretty unconventional path to Washington, especially for someone um, my age. Um, grew up in the North Carolina Piedmont, went to college there at Davidson College, uh, and then immediately after went and worked in the consulting world for McKinsey and Company. Um, did that for a few years. Um, grew sick of it rather quickly and knew that I wanted to come to Washington and do policy work. I'd had some exposure in college through some fellowship programs um, that really helped inform my thinking, but most importantly, connect me with young people that were doing valuable, interesting work. I kind of had this very naive view in college that DC just consisted of electeds, chiefs of staffs, and armies of interns, and that there wasn't interesting work to do in the middle. It was very clear, though, sort of seeing young people doing exciting work that you could come to Washington and could do something valuable. And so uh, I left the firm after a few years, uh, came to Washington, and then went to work for Senator Mike Lee uh, as part of the Joint Economic Committee staff. He had a project then run by Scott Winship, who's now at AEI, called the Social Capital Project. And sort of the spirit of the Social Capital Project was trying to sort of explore some of these um, sort of trends that folks like Bob Putnam Charles Murray had explored in their writing about the breakdown of American social and institutional life. Um, these were questions that, of course, had been really salient in the 2016 election. I wanted to understand them further and understand sort of the policy responses that were going to be necessary. At the time, this is like 2018 and 2019, there's sort of a sort of an emerging policy debate on, on the right of center. And that's how I got connected with, um, with, with Orrin Cass. Uh, who asked me to come aboard and help him launch American Compass. Uh, so I've been the research director there since we launched in uh, May of 2020. Very cool. So I uh, have so much I want to unpack in that, but I specifically am curious about your assessment of McKinsey and company. Obviously, you know, don't speak ill of, uh, of, of anyone in particular, but what is your impression of the role that, that the management consulting industry plays in American life? Well, at their very worst, management consultants are just mercenaries for neoliberalism. Um, but I think the lessons that I learned beyond, I think, one Binyamin Applebaum, yes, you know, <laughs> red prices in Canada, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's certainly valuable work that consultants can do. There's a lot of valuable skills. 
Um, I learned a lot of those. I still think that working at any of the big three firms is one of the best jobs you can get out of college just in terms of sheer exposure and professional development. But I think the lessons that I learned that were most powerful in shaping my perspective were twofold. Um, one was I got to kind of see how the proverbial sausage is made in corporate America um, from sort of a unique set of vantage points as a consultant and a junior consultant. Um, I sort of came at this initially kind of thinking that what, what was good for corporate America was good for America and that efficient markets would produce the best results for the American people, for people world, worldwide, for American businesses. I can hear your PowerPoint voice just starting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it becomes very obvious that the business world is incredibly messy. It defies every theory you're taught in Econ 101 and that beyond that, Corporations don't necessarily care about the American interest. They don't care about American workers and their families or American power. And that increasingly they're not really concerned with long-term growth and productivity. They're concerned with cutting costs and being more efficient and, and increasing returns for their shareholders, which they call impact, but isn't necessarily beneficial for the American people. So that was the first lesson. It definitely kind of blackpilled me on corporate America. Mm -hmm. But the other one was, I guess, somewhat political. Um, I was uh, at McKinsey in the early Trump years and was in New York for a financial services strategy project on election night 2016. And going into the, to the New York office the day after the election, I mean, you would have think you, you would have thought the president had been shot. I mean, it was just <laughs> dead silent. And you definitely got the sense there were a lot of partners there, probably expecting you know some some positions in the Clinton administration that just had their hopes dashed. But over time, hearing the way people talked about the election, processed the election, spoke about Trump voters, and also their sense of attitude um, about the results and about what came after, it really taught me a lot about the meritocracy, right? The people there, they're really sharp. They're very, very sharp. Uh, they work very hard. Um, they're, very well, they're very well credentialed. And they think that by virtue of that, that they're entitled to rule. Um, it was a very important lesson to realize, uh, to realize then, especially in 2016, um, that the American people decide who rules and that meritocracy can only get you so far and that the meritocrats that our system is producing don't feel responsible to the American people in the way that they should. And that there's a whole lot more um, to governing well um, and to making good decisions than just being super smart. Mm -hmm. that having a sense of responsibility um, really matters too. And I don't think our meritocrats have that. So I think there's all sorts of interesting upshots to the picture you've laid out, but I want to put a very fine point on it. Is McKinsey bad at its job or does McKinsey just have a job that shouldn't exist in an economy that was actually constructed for the American people? Like on their own terms, are they good at what they do? Oh, they're very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's, there, there, there's a reason why any of the big consulting firms are hugely successful. Um, I think the problems are the sets of incentives that businesses have today, um, the strategies that they've adopted and that they've hired consultants to do. What's I think most troubling is the fact that businesses increasingly rely on consultants, um, which I think can kind of be a leading indicator of um, just a decline in optimism. Again, as I was saying, you typically bring in consultants to either validate an executive's instincts and show that they're plausible for you know for moving in a new strategic direction. 
or for cutting costs or doing sort of a short-term project that maybe they don't have the in-house expertise and talent to, to, to execute. And so I think reliance on consultants kind of betrays a lack of confidence by American business and especially the types of projects that you see consultancies doing now. Um, you know, they, they certainly enabled offshoring, they enabled downsizing and the outsourcing of talent and work. Um, and they've uh, in, in, enabled the rise of China in, in major ways. And of yeah, course, as we've seen- do their global retreat in China <laughs> for many years. Uh, I believe maybe one of the offices did yeah. a retreat, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because the other thing McKinsey can in some ways be a synecdoche for is a term that's thrown around very flippantly in our circles and sometimes gets annoying, but the, the professional managerial class. Mm. If, there's, if there's any place where the professional managerial class is typified, it's a place like McKinsey. Uh, what, what do you make of sort of the, the, the labor pool of McKinsey consultants? The fact that you, as someone who was fresh out of college, were there, um, the kind of Pete Buttigieg American archetype that's there. I know that if you go to Harvard, you basically have a job at McKinsey if you want it. Um, what was your assessment of your, uh, you know, uh, co- uh, you know, class interests at as a as a junior consultant there, and and what their incentives and priorities and even talent to offer the country is. I don't think there was a whole lot of interest in developing expertise. There were certainly exceptions to that, but look, when you're throwing in people fresh out of college that know absolutely nothing about business in most cases to solve what they said were the most exciting business problems. Uh, were they the most exciting business? Problems? Uh, they weren't that exciting <laughs> to me. Some some were pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I definitely think it, it, it's fair to say that neither the lifestyle nor the types of projects that they put people on, uh, gives people any real sense of attachment or loyalty to the country and its people. Um, and also that it offers a very privileged, but very skewed vantage point on the American economy. Um, that's valuable. I think if you're trying to critique it, but isn't super valuable to trying to really understand how things work again when you're kind of jumping around from sector to sector project to project function to function um you aren't really able to go especially deep and this kind of changes as folks sort of move along in their careers but um i i i, I think the types of critiques that folks make um about sort of like the jet setter pmc classes as having a distinct interest and vantage point are absolutely true mm -hmm. um and uh, I, I i do think it's good to try to adopt um, some kind of critical distance from it. Mm -hmm. What have you made of these um, TikTok videos that have recently started floating around the internet of, I don't think specifically McKinsey has come up yet, but I believe at least one of them was Deloitte project managers at, at uh, big tech companies, et cetera, you know, doing a day in the life of, do they ring true in terms of what the kind of cultural milieu that you uh, lived in for a few years was? Uh, I think if they showed the actual day in the life, they would have a hard time recruiting more talent. Um, <laughs> The real day in the life is uh, working long hours, often out of hotel rooms late at night. Mm -hmm. And all the Western hotel rooms, they just kind of start to blend together and you have a hard time uh, trying to distinguish project to project. Yeah. Um, the day in the life is far less glamorous than it sounds or than the TikTok videos try to make it seem to be. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side of this, you know, it seems like the the McKinsey class can can often be the uh, champions of and the foot soldiers for maybe the officer class for neoliberalism. But I've also noticed an interesting trend that has such a small sample size that it might not even be a trend of people on our faction of the right who are more interested in a heterodox set of economic policies, often coming from that world. Why do you think that is? 
Um, again, I, I, it, it, it does offer a unique vantage point. It does provide, I think, a certain set of analytical tools that can be valuable for policymaking and policy analysis. Um, it's also very easy if you go into that work with a certain set of ideological commitments to walk out of it um, uh, with a very colored uh, perspective on America uh, and uh, really losing hope in American capitalism, especially now. Um, so I'm not surprised. Um, one, just because it does attract a lot of really good talent. My smart, myself is one great exception to that. Um, but it does, it does, it does attract great talent. Um, and so I'm not surprised that folks within our movement have come from the private sector. I think it's really great training. Um, but I'm also not surprised in particular that folks that have done consulting walk away so jaded because there's a lot to be jaded about that they've probably seen. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot of fantastic work at American Compass, uh, but there is a line of of research you've done that I'm I'm particularly interested in, and it's centered around the story of the American automobile. Walk me through a brief history of what on earth happened to the idea that there should be cars made in America. Yeah, so I guess instead of maybe telling one big story about the auto industry, I'll focus on a particular chapter that I think is really interesting. Um, the year is 1980 and economic conditions in America are not also different from what they are today. Record inflation, gas prices are really high thanks to geopolitical disruptions in this time. Uh, 1979, you had the revolution in Iran, so gas prices are very high. And you have an unpopular Democrat in the White House. Um, when gas prices are high, uh, this obviously has effects for the auto industry. The auto industry was in crisis, but it was a crisis that had been boiling for years. At the time, there was another uh, geopolitical, geoeconomic rival to the United States that was emerging in the Asia Pacific. It wasn't China at the time, it was Japan. And Japan had, for four decades, nurtured a very efficient, high-quality auto industry using aggressive state subsidy, state support, and state protection, high-tariff barriers to allow uh, an industry to, 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 to germinate and, 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 and blossom. And eventually, by, by 1980, Japan is making the highest quality, most efficient, most affordable compact cars in the world. Um, Toyota in particular was uniquely efficient and its management techniques were the, 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 um, were, 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 were peerless. Um, this created understandably turmoil for the American auto industry. The big three automakers, GMC, Chrysler, Ford had, had experienced more than two decades of sustained profits and growth. But that changed in 1980. They suffered huge collective losses. They had to lay off a tenth of their workforce. And it was all because American consumers, driven by high gas prices, were shifting to these very nice, very cheap, very fuel-efficient, compact Japanese cars instead of the large sedans uh, and larger vehicles that had been the specialty of American automakers. Obviously, the implications for American workers are huge. 
um, implications for these businesses was huge. Chrysler was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, something had to be done. Ford and the UAW each separately filed for import relief from the USITC, and they were rejected. In part, the commission stated, because they feared that any kind of import relief would discourage the Japanese from potentially investing in the United States in the future, moving their production here. The White House was also reluctant to help out. Jimmy Carter swore off any import relief and instead offered essentially a program of palliative care. Um, some retraining for the workers that were laid off, some community relief programs to towns that had been affected. Um, if there had been a large software industry at the time, he would have been suggesting that they learn to code. <laughs> it was also 1980, an election year, and Ronald Reagan was, was, was running. In October 1980, he visits a Chrysler plant in Michigan, and he promises that protectionism is coming if the Japanese don't change their approach and offer import relief to the United States, restrain themselves and give American automakers time to recover. He makes this promise to American workers, to American automakers, and he gets elected in a landslide election, we all know. He comes into office and in spring of 1981, there are intense deliberations within the White House. There were essentially two factions that had formed in the cabinet. One, Donald Regan, who's a former Merrill Lynch executive, secretary of treasury, uh, was supporting essentially a free market faction. And its argument was that providing import relief or barring imports, limiting the imports of Japanese cars would insulate uh, American companies in a way that would raise prices for consumers, but also discourage uh, the competitive forces that, according to free market theory, were necessary for American firms to want to innovate and adapt to develop better, high quality, more efficient cars. On the flip side, you had another faction, more of a pragmatist faction, uh, led by the secretaries of commerce and labor, two men with industry and labor experience themselves. They had a much more practical approach, which was, no, Mr. President, you need to negotiate a quota, limit the imports of Japanese automobiles. Reagan deliberated and he decided on kind of a, a moderate position, which was he would negotiate a voluntary export restraint. Essentially, he would meet with the Japanese and negotiate a limit that they would place on their automakers on the number of cars they would export to the United States. They set that cap at 1.7 million cars. It's the number of cars they sold in 1979 and let the market adapt. Now, now it's interesting, right? I mean, I mean, this is coming from, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, disciple of Hayek, you know, champion of free markets. Uh, you would think he would be a dogmatic free trader, but he wasn't. And in many ways, it makes sense because this case kind of defied economic theory, free market economic theory. Here is Japan, a protectionist power, which, according to um, the free market folks, um, should not develop and foster the most innovative, competitive companies in the world. In the United States, which had open, fair competition and free trade, should have had more competitive marketplaces and more competitive, innovative firms, and it didn't. And so in part, the defiance of economic theory led President Reagan to adopt a different approach. Now, what, what, what happens? What are the implications of this? Well, 
One, very immediately, market share stabilizes for American firms. Um, their share begins to stabilize. They begin to to, 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 to make some profit again. Not quite what they had before, but they're, they're coming back. It, it, it stabilizes. They take this time, this breathing room to innovate. They launch joint ventures with certain Japanese firms. They try to adopt similar management techniques. Their cars become higher quality. They become safer. They become more fuel efficient. Um, they're able to retool and adapt. Um, and so, contra what Donald Reagan and others were saying, insulating them from some competition did not mean that they wanted to lose their competitive edge. They wanted to regain it. But the third and most lasting change, and the one that we still see today, was one that I think you could hardly have predicted, especially if you think back to what the USITC was saying, that some kind of limit on imports would discourage Japanese investment. Because the quota that Reagan negotiated only applied to imports and didn't apply to cars that were American-made, there was a new incentive for the Japanese to invest in America. The Japanese had previously denied requests from the UAW and others to invest in the United States. And in 1980, there were zero, zero assembly plants in the United States for Japanese companies. By the end of the decade, there were eight. Every major Japanese automaker had an auto plant. And in the 1990s, they bought production facilities. And later on, they brought cutting-edge R&D facilities throughout, uh, th throughout the Southeast, throughout the Midwest, the heartland. And today, we have many assembly and production plants still in the Southeast, um, not only Japanese automakers, but Germans, others. Um, in the South, we have an industrial base for assembling and producing cars in the United States. And it's thanks in part to President Reagan and his protectionism, um, but more importantly, his economic statesmanship. It's a fascinating story because it cuts against so many biases that that people might have in a variety of ways um you know obviously you have the free market folks that uh would a you know balk at any characterization of reagan that wasn't the second coming of barry goldwater water even though he explicitly ran as something other than that uh, but two it, it even um sort of uh simplifies potentially the task ahead for economic reformers today which is that uh this wasn't some hyper complicated you know byzantine four thousand page bill that we had to ram through to solve this problem it was ultimately a blunt instrument of quota <laughs> yes, <laughs> or, or right. well, an, an export limitation uh, i'm just curious as one minor piece of it uh, why would the japanese agree to an export quota so there were a few reasons um one is that the Japanese government itself was beginning to lose its grip on its own automakers. It wanted to kind of bring in some discipline again to them. So this actually gave them more leverage in being able to shape and direct the industry. Um, the, 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 the second reason was geopolitical. Um, the United States was an important ally, and there would have been greater concessions potentially had they not agreed to this limit at the time. Uh, and then I think they also sensed and I think this is clear in some of the documents as well from from the, from the period that there was really uh, an economic incentive um, for long-term investment in the United States, but only under certain conditions. And so to your point, I think some of the lessons from this particular chapter of economic history um, are, yeah, you know, one, that technocratic solutions are not always the best solutions. In fact, sometimes they're counterproductive and that often, to your point, that blunt instruments are good for blunt goods. Um and that 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 it actually allows you to have a freer market. Note there wasn't additional regulation of domestic industry 
It was just a cap on imports that allows you to create what we've called an American compass, a bounded market, where you set up certain common sense, straightforward boundaries to regulate international competition and trade, but it permits a relatively free and competitive domestic market. And then the second is that uh, you really can't farm out policymaking to dogma. Um, sure, Ronald Reagan could have consulted um, you know, any of the texts of Hayek that he had in his library uh, and, and, and drawn up a free market plan. Um, but as he understood, um, theory could only take you so far. And uh, especially when you're dealing with manufacturing industries, international competition, an element of statesmanship is necessary um, and that uh, theory and dogma uh, can only take you so far in policymaking. Very interesting. Um, what was Congress's response to this sort of unilateral action from Reagan? Was there um, you know, the same sort of ideological pressure from the Republican Party in Congress against this sort of behavior? Or was this pre that sort of there was crystallism? An, there was an interesting bipartisan consensus actually beginning to form that threatened to put in place an actual quota if Reagan refused to act. Mm. And this was coming from both Republicans and Democrats. To a certain extent, it forced Reagan's hand. It also gave Reagan a unique position uh, for negotiating with the Japanese. Um, you know, the threat of an outright quota. Um, yes, this helped help to bring the Japanese to the table, but more importantly, it enabled Ronald Reagan to pitch this as being a kind of compromise. Um, it wasn't aggressive. It was the modest. It was the diplomatic solution. Um, it was sort of a unique political gift that the Gipper had. Um, but Congress enabled him to do that in part because, at least at the time, there was a bipartisan consensus that we should protect American industry and American workers. This is, of course, not what we had in, say, 2000 when there was a bipartisan consensus against that notion. Um, but at the time, it was it, it was a common sense view. In fact, there's polling from, from 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 the New York Times at the time that showed that that roughly 70 percent of Americans agreed that, that they were they were comfortable paying a higher price uh, for, for for goods if it meant that American jobs were were, were protected. Now. One of the interesting correctives that's happened to my worldview over the last two years that I think you've recently began to appreciate as well is um, just how important it is to appropriately index even some of the these sort of normie conservative talking points when it comes to economic issues. And there's two in this case study that I want to look at. One is energy and the other is the environment. Hmm. Um, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the benefits that Reagan may have had at the time that would make something like this harder today is that one, the uh, anti-energy, anti-prosperity left was less institutionalized, less formalized, and there was less of a regulatory state that could easily, um, you know, uh, put, you know, sand in the gears of this sort of um, industrial uptick. And, and two, um, there was less of the kind of formal anti-energy movement as well. Do, do you think that the absence of those formal um, uh, policy barriers to the extent that I'm at all right that there was an absence of those plays a part here? Yeah, I, I don't know if there was quite an absence. It certainly was not as um, politically high profile and the barriers certainly weren't as high then as they are now. But, you know, you did have the EPA at the time. NEPA had passed decade before. 
Um, but I think the important thing to note is, one, those regulatory burdens mostly applied to new construction and not as much to old or legacy construction. And so I think the effect on industry would be seen later on, which we, which we have seen. Um, and two, yeah, as, as, as you well know, and as conservatives well known, um, government action, new agencies and regulations tend to take on a life of their own the moment that they're implemented. And so we have seen a growth and regulation, in particular of the environment and of energy over time. And that's discouraging. And this is a place where I think that the sort of the conventional conservative approach and analysis is exactly right. Um, and I think we need to bring that to bear, especially in our industrial policy debates. I think this is often lost um, in the, 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 the high profile debates that say you see on Twitter where libertarians are bashing industrial policy and say folks from sort of the NatCon right are suggesting that industrial policy is some kind of awesome central planning and that it's going to be great. Um, neither is true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and industrial policy has a long history in the United States. And it, it, it also necessarily requires a host of different strategies, some of which is deregulatory and actually unshackling industry to do what it needs to do for the American people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like weirdly enough, the consensus that we're at today is that especially given that the left is the one leading the charge on mm -hmm. so much industrial policy, it's like, what's that? What's that meme that some leftist wrote a book on? It's like fully automated luxury gay space. Yeah. Communism. <laughs> like it's, it's just like fully, totally regulated right, industrial right, right, policy right. where everyone has a solar uh, powered vehicle and like, a you know, a house on the moon. It's like, no, you can't. You can't have that. Um, uh, so lesson learned, you can have. Uh, cars made in the United States. Uh, and then you have the trade reforms in the 90s with NAFTA. Um, what accompanying that, and tell me a little bit about that itself, did it do to destroy the gains that we had made in the American auto industry? So for this, I'll tell a different story. I studied history in college, so I like to tell stories from chapters in history. Um, and I'll tell a story about NASCAR. I, I grew up in the North Carolina Piedmont, so grew up going to races and grew up in a town next over from Dale Earnhardt's hometown, the great hero of American auto racing, especially in the 80s and 90s. Um, Dale Earnhardt died in 2001 at the Daytona 500. And his, his, his death, as I've written about before, really kicked off um, a series of changes to that sport um, that coincided with NAFTA and uh, the entry of China into the WTO, um, uh, this sort of wave of liberalizing reforms in the 90s and early 2000s um, that w was, w was decimating the South, in particular the New South, the industrialized South of, you know, mostly, you know, black and white working class manufacturing laborers um, that were also the backbone of NASCAR's fan base. Um, and these changes were from everywhere from regulating safety. Of course, Dale had died and they didn't want to have another high profile racer die. So they regulated safety. They regulated competition. They brought in some kind of like sort of proto woke cultural changes. But maybe the most interesting one, I think, was they kind of did offshoring in NASCAR. Um, you know, NASCAR arose in the Carolinas. Uh, it, the, the, the origins go back um, to moonshiners trying to, to run away from the revenue man. Um, uh, it was raced on dirt tracks. It was very informal. It was chaotic. 
uh, and a lot of these small regional tracks, mostly in the Carolinas, some in the Virginias, um, obviously didn't have the same kind of commercial appeal. They couldn't seat as many people. They were in remote locations, towns like Rockingham and North Wilkesboro and Darlington, small cities, small towns, largely industrial textile towns. Um, and by, you know, 2000, the mid 2000s, these were just not as exciting of venues. They weren't as um, uh, popular, uh, certainly not for NASCAR executives and wouldn't help grow the sport. And so they began to shut down a lot of these races and they were building up tracks in places like Chicago and Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Miami and moving the races that had formerly been in these smaller tracks and moving them elsewhere. Um, that decimated these towns. Um, and so at the same time that Kannapolis, Dale Earnhardt's hometown, uh, the, the the textile base there used to have the 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 the, the second largest te textile base in the country. The facilities were larger than the Pentagon. Um, that shutters the textile base in Darlington shutters. Um, you see both the economic and cultural base of these places collapse. And there was this amazing quote that I found from the Chamber of Commerce of Darlington, South Carolina, lamenting the loss of their Labor Day weekend race. <laughs> saying this is kind of like what they did to us with nafta that they are are, are 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 ripping out the base the economic base of our town from us um the the, 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 the we are becoming dispossessed um largely because of business pursuit of profit um i sort of was living in the region at that time i was a kid so i, I wasn't able to put kind of two and two together until i like looked back but it is amazing the way in which I think um, these economic trends, which we've read about in books, we know about deaths of despair. We've read books like Hillbilly Elegy and Coming Apart. Um, sometimes we don't connect those to some of the cultural trends that we've seen as well. And I saw it in the sport of NASCAR and the changes that that, that, that took place at, at, at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone loves to, to play the institution fetish game, um, but... Very rarely are people um, paying attention to to what it actually looks like. It's it's this sort of academic or rarefied thing that they talk about. But you think of what a thing like NASCAR would do for a small town in the South. It it, it would have been integral to everything that made life in that town worth living. And it's 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 hard to imagine a world where you could reindustrialize parts of this country without also accounting for the necessary revival of cultural institutions like that. And so this is why I, I always say that there, there are no social issues. I think everything's a social issue, <laughs> including uh, economics and foreign policy. And so it's very hard to 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 disentangle these things. Mm. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of it, I think, comes from the perspective of of tastemakers at the highest levels of politics, culture and finance that would take a perspective on the world that says that the time has passed for places like this and and cultural um uh, uh epicenters like this and uh the future is in los angeles or in new york or in um uh you know a financial capital of the country um so it's not important that we have an ask car race in in that town and it's not important that we uh, make textiles in that town 
either. Um, you know, Chinese businessmen uh, who are getting rich off of making the textiles in China can come over to Los Angeles to see their NASCAR race. Please and thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, what has happened since then to the institution of NASCAR? I mean, in the 2010s, it feels like it was this flashpoint for sort of cultural, um, you know, rebellion against, uh, you know, Obama-style liberalism. Uh, what, what, what has become of the institution today? Definitely by 2020, NASCAR kind of reached a low point. I mean, it's been bleeding viewership. It's been shutting down tracks. They've been stripping out grandstands at Daytona. Um, the, the, the sport is certainly losing its popularity. I mean, you have to bear in mind that the turn of the millennium, uh, NASCAR was huge. Um, it surpassed the MLB in viewership in many regions. Really? It was poised to surpass. Um, you know, the NBA, NHL, even the NFL in, in some markets, it was huge, signed huge TV deals. And in some respects, you could just say that NASCAR executives was all in one family, uh, that they got greedy. That's certainly true. But you're, you're right that it was kind of this um, sort of quest to continue to grow the sport um, that meant that it lost its regional and cultural distinctives and that it lost its base. Um, especially when it began to try to tinker with the sport and the things that made it a very unique product to watch. Mm -hmm. um, like what? So for one, uh, in, in, in the wake of Dale's death, they launched this massive R&D facility um, in, in Concord, North Carolina, where I'm from, where they developed the car of tomorrow, which was, you know, a super safe but also super boxy mm -hmm. and it drive terribly. Um, and, uh, you know, drivers complained about it all the time. They were slapped with fines for complaining about it in public. The first driver to win a race in a car of tomorrow complained about it in victory lane. <laughs> I mean, th 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 this is not a popular thing. Uh, they also changed the competition to it. Um, NASCAR had always been regulated by a point system. So, you know, it wasn't just sort of the number of races you won, but also the number of laps led, polls held, that that, that, that sort of thing. Your, your, your finishing position mattered too, of course. But there was always a fairly sophisticated algorithm, more or less, that determined who was the winner. Um, NASCAR began to tinker with this, in part because they got uh, competitive and greedy, uh, particularly with the NFL and MLB. Mm -hmm. There's no postseason in NASCAR. There's no playoff, or at least mm -hmm. there shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And so they decided that there should be. Mm -hmm. So they created essentially a faux playoff where sort of the last 10 races of the year, this is beginning like 2004, um, they created the chase where they sort of took like, you know, I think it was the top 16 finishers and they essentially hit reset and started the season all over again. And, and, and they introduced elimination rounds and this kind of thing it became incredibly confusing. Um, so confusing. In fact, they had to publish an FAQ <laughs> on the rules. That's it, it, it was incredibly complicated. And, you know, fans complained. They poll tested the idea of a chase. It got like completely shut down by the fans. The fans rejected it. NASCAR essentially like rejected the polls mm -hmm. and uh, announced the launch of the chase mm -hmm. the following day. Um, uh, but it, it really did sort of change the spirit and ethos of the sport mm -hmm. in meaningful ways. And it's unsurprising that it's continued to bleed viewers um, ever since. The sport is kind of starting to make a comeback. Um, I'm, I'm very encouraged. They're doing dirt races at Bristol, uh, which is exciting. They're bringing the all-star race uh, back to North Wilkesboro this year. Um, that's really exciting. Um, 
but aside from those kinds of small changes, I do think that it that 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 it will kind of shrink in relevance culturally, certainly from its high point uh, in 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 two thousand and two thousand and one. Um, and I hope that will lead NASCAR to tap back into its regional distinctives, the things that make the sport great. Is there any story to be told on the parallel trajectories of NASCAR versus F1? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not sure they're parallel. In many ways, I guess they're kind of opposite. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I don't I watch. Mean, F1 is very much the like, you know, you look at the stands, it's like, oh, it's a Saudi prince there, a Chinese billionaire there. You yeah, know, it's yeah, like the, yeah. It is sort of the like stomping ground for the, the global elite. No, you're 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 absolutely right it, it, that it's a stomping ground for the, the global elite. And what I understand about F1 is that it is kind of uniquely European and kind of taps into the weird sort of like European tradition of motorsports, which I think was kind of closer to it had this sort of like night jousting like quality to mm-hmm. it where you essentially had gentlemen. Mm-hmm that could purchase cars themselves and have sort of a team of squires around them go in these very nice races for like honor and glory. And mm-hmm. that was it. Um, do you not have the same kind of like pit squad in NASCAR? You do have a pit squad in NASCAR, but it's far more democratic. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's working Joes that race, mm-hmm. uh, at least, at least, at least in the very, very early days of the sport, you certainly do have like Royal families within it. I mean, the Earnhardt's became a kind of Royal family. The Petties are a Royal family and so on. But, um, these are working class people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dale Earnhardt is kind of like the quintessential example. Um, Dale was the son of a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, Dale refused to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was what was poor, struggled to pay child support. Uh, could, could, could could barely afford to pay rent. He ultimately lived in a trailer next, behind his mom's house. He lived next to the garage where he tinkered on his own cars. Um, that was a story for a lot of NASCAR drivers. Um, and it was in part why fans could identify so much with them. Um, it was a very, uh, you know, a democratic and very uniquely American story that it, these were stock cars. Like these aren't sports cars. They aren't racing Ferraris. They're, they're, they're racing stock cars. Um, and, and it used to be at least that you could go to your Ford dealership mm-hmm. on Monday and buy the car that you'd seen more or less in, in victory lane on Sunday. Um, these, these, these were stock cars. It was accessible. It was available to the working and middle class. It was uniquely American in that way. And you just don't see that in Formula One. I mean, no one's going, no one thinks that they can purchase a, a, a vehicle like what you see on an F1 track unless you have millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is an elite activity. It's an international elite activity. And I think it's kind of born more out of kind of the European ethos to this, which is a more aristocratic mm-hmm. impulse. Whereas NASCAR has always been more democratic. Again, they're racing stock cars. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're racing Camrys and Tauruses. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think this is a really interesting frame from which to understand some of the, the issues that are going on in the country right now. And it, it also goes to one of the unique challenges of policymaking in this time, which is that, you know, one of the concerns I've heard starting to be levied against various industrial policy proposals, you know, ideas on hand to reindustrialize the country is that it's very rare that if there are manufacturing jobs that come out of a particular legislative proposal, they're going back to the place that they left from. Hmm. You know, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to make silicon in the United States or we're going to create a car factory. Well, that's going to be in the Sun Belt. <laughs> it's not going to be in the Rust Belt. Right, right. Um, how do you think of how we should think about 
the politics of like restoration and the policy hmm. surrounding restoration. It, how, what expectations should policymakers and people interested in, in this set of ideas have for what can be done for small town America that policymakers definitely screwed over the last half of um, the 20th century? I think in part it's about having some acknowledgement of American economic history. Um, the United States is a really rich nation and it's, it's no surprise that we became the wealthiest nation in the world, just given our, 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 our natural resources, but nobody looks out on the wild of the American frontier, uh, and, 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 and necessarily sees and, uh, an, an, an industrialized commercial Republic. They see the wild. Um, I think we need to kind of take back that sort of frontier, men, men, that frontier mentality. Um, and, and not think that we've sort of, um, developed and explored as far as we can go. And so that means kind of a return to what came before. No, I think we need to actually genuinely adopt something new. And I think we need to adopt kind of a frontier mentality when we looked out on the deindustrialized regions within the United States and not say, well, how do we get it back to where we're making, you know, washing machines here in the United States again? Although that would be nice, but thinking rather, how can we make sure that we have, the, the innovation and industrial hubs of the future in the United States and look out at the industrial blight and the sheer wilds of it and adopt the kind of mentality that statesmen of old had, which was with the right set of rules and incentives in place, we can unleash American capital and the genius of the American people to tackle these challenges and, to, and, and develop and innovate in unique mm -hmm. ways. And so I think it's as much a mindset shift as anything else. Um, there are obviously a number of reasons why we want to say make semiconductors in Arizona, uh, industrialize the Sun Belt, and so on. A lot of that's labor law. A lot of it's other things. I mean, there's also just exciting, fast-growing areas. But I don't think that that means we should necessarily rule out the heartland. And it, 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 it I think pins in on a really, really key point that I think we as conservatives need to assert. As conservatives, we think that growth is great, but growth is also derivative. Growth is indicative of material prosperity, but has nothing to say about where that prosperity goes mm -hmm. or what it does. It's really discouraging, for instance, that most of the growth or most of the economic recovery in the wake of the great financial crisis, most of it went to just a few metropolises and that we've seen a yawning gap geographically, regionally in terms of development. Some of that will always exist. There will always be richer and poorer parts of the country. But the kinds of gaps that we've seen in economic activity, I just don't think is sustainable. It may be sustainable economically in theory, but it's not sustainable politically or socially. And I think that's that's a vantage point that we as conservatives bring that's unique because you talk to a libertarian and they say, um, well, just buy everyone a U-Haul so they can move to places that are booming mm -hmm. and they can get out of these areas and they can you know go back to being the wilds that they once were mm -hmm. abandoned empty and we understand that that's wrong that there's a reason why people want to be in their ancestral homes they want to be close to family i mean the the, the typical american lives within 20 minutes of their mother mm -hmm. they want to be close to family and they want to be close to their communities and what i think we need to be thinking about to your point before about how we can't decouple social and cultural problems from economic ones and vice versa is that our economic policy should ultimately be about 
establishing the material preconditions of the type of society we want to have. That's not about social engineering. That's about ensuring that the people have the resources they need to be able to make the decisions for themselves and their communities. I think that's a very common sense and conservative approach to these issues. And I think if we sort of build it out in sort of a regional level, uh, I, I, I think it's a winning message. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said earlier um, is often manipulated by our policymakers to to do a bunch of really silly stuff, namely the 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 distinction between you know sort of a revanchist mindset um, versus you know the the industry of tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but but a lot of policymakers will use it to to say, okay, cool, that means we're going to do solar panels, uh, electric vehicles, and uh, you know just just like kind of vaporware, high tech stuff. Sure. Um, how do you think about the the composition of the you know uh, economy that we need to have, or, or or at least the priorities of the public policies we need to do, when it comes to like industrial inputs, things like steel and um, you know textiles and and you know these really basic goods that would be recognizable to someone in the twentieth century, versus the really high tech stuff, um, and and do you think that? there's maybe too much emphasis on on the high-tech stuff in Washington. I don't think there's maybe too much emphasis on the high-tech stuff. I think in, in, in part, it's just the kind of high-tech we're talking about isn't really high-tech. Um, software innovation is great, but it's not really high-tech. Um, and it's certainly a break from historic US policy, which was you know, funding innovation and hardware technology. And that was sort of a core focus mm-hmm. in the early days of the computer industry. Um, and so I think in, in, in part, we've sort of created this false dichotomy between you know, high tech and innovation and, um, and uh, you know, these sort of core industries and uh, you know, uh, you know, like producing steel, aluminum, so on. Um, and, and it's a it's it's the kind of divide right between innovation and bits and atoms. Mm-hmm. I, I I I I don't think we need to maintain that distinction. And I think it's false when we talk about high tech to be thinking mostly in terms of the kinds of things that passes for mm-hmm. innovation in Silicon Valley today, which is not what used to be the innovation that we had in Silicon Valley, you know, almost a hundred years ago, which was innovation in semiconductor chips, uh, in radios, early computers. Uh, uh, displays. I mean, all of the core technologies to go in to the digital age and instead is essentially just trying to refine the algorithms to target ads and media for consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very different mindset. And I, I, I think in part policymakers have just kind of been asleep at the wheel on these tech policy questions and essentially al- allow themselves to take orders from the types of people that pass for geniuses in Silicon Valley and have forgotten some of the core lessons of especially the post-war period, which are that the government has a really important role to play in innovation. And a lot of that innovation is in hardware technology and technology that can be produced domestically and has to be manufactured domestically. Mm-hmm. One of the upshots of this distinction um, between high-tech high and quote-unquote low-tech is uh, the kinds of workers that the economy will have to marshal in order to um, succeed. And it's very clear that our our ruling class in this country would much prefer public policy that benefits that professional managerial class we were talking about earlier, the population of sort of, um, you know, well-to-do 
uh, you know, software developers and such. Sure. Um, but in order to have a thriving sort of low tech, quote unquote, industrial sector, you need a thriving blue collar workforce. And there's all sorts of reasons that our public policy is very poorly suited to creating a thriving blue collar workforce. There's issues with immigration, there's issues with education, um, but one of the biggest is issues with labor policy. What's the state of American labor today? And why is this the thing that you get the most trouble for on the right um, for, for expressing a heterodox perspective on? Um. I mean, the American labor movement, despite all the headlines you see and the coverage you get for organizing campaigns, is historically weak. Um, private sector union density is at an all-time low. It's like six and a half percent. And look, uh, labor unions have historically played a very important function. I think as they've kind of uh, as their power has, has waned, they have shifted to focusing more on political advocacy and activism, understanding that that's an easier way to score wins when you have um, so few members compared to what you used to have. Um, and, in, and in part, this is a product of law. We haven't uh, uh, updated our labor laws meaningfully in nearly a century. Um, that's a problem, and it's certainly hamstring the kinds of innovation we actually need and models of organizing workers that suit their needs and mm -hmm. the modern economy which is very different from the economy of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. I, I think we can all uh, agree about that. Um, but labor has a unique role to play in educating workers. And you see this in, in the unions that are the most effective, that have the highest rates of membership and are the most popular. And also I'll note, typically the most conservative, at least in terms of their membership, are the ones where they're focused uniquely on worker training. Mm -hmm. um, and unions are uniquely positioned for this because they are kind of the only institution that can solve what's sort of one of the classic problems in labor economics, which is that firms don't really have an interest in training their own workers. Because mm -hmm. what happens when that worker, say, leaves to go to a competitor and suddenly all this investment, you can't capture the gains from it. And so I think rebuilding a system of organized labor that is actually focused on workers' genuine needs mm -hmm. and interests and not on politics is a key, not just to ensure they have a greater voice and bargaining power, but also to make sure that we, to your point, have the manufacturing workforce, the skilled workforce that we're going to need if we want to genuinely reindustrialize the United States. I, I find the, the educating power of the, the union as a really, really interesting question because I, it seems to me that a lot of the discourse you see in DC around blue collar work is is often quite silly you know it's it's the idea we're going to spin up a million technical colleges across the country and that's how you're going to create your industrial workforce it seems like trying to to unnecessarily reinvent a wheel when you have this population that at least once upon a time was incentivized to train itself um and probably had a significantly higher yield rate in terms of the people who went through its training procedures who actually became members of that skilled workforce. Uh, and it was a sort of closed financial loop. You, you right. didn't have to input massive amounts of money on a daily right, basis. Right, right. Where do you think the like DC workforce development conversation goes wrong when it when it tries to emphasize even, you know, non four year degrees, but, but still degrees and colleges and fancy buildings where you learn how to weld? Well, for one thing, it ignores a lot of the problems that happen in K to 12, which is that we still 
prepare everyone to go to college. Mm -hmm. There aren't genuine tracks that go to non-college pathways. And so even so high school graduates don't necessarily have the skills that you would expect them to have to enter into the workforce and they have to go and get supplemental degrees. That's one problem. The second is that so many of these technical colleges and community colleges, which at least in theory are uniquely positioned to provide some of these programs, um, they don't have the incentives they need to train workers well. They get funding based on enrollment, based on the number of people they bring in to confer degrees to and to educate, um, not based on the outcomes. Um, there are some colleges in the U.S. that are experimenting with outcome-oriented funding models. I think it's very promising. I think it's very important, and policymakers should take a very close look at adopting that approach. Mm-hmm. But the labor union solution is, I think, especially exciting, at least in theory, because at least if we had an entirely voluntary approach to organized labor, again, it would be worker-directed. And uh, the only way you would retain membership would be if workers felt that they were getting a genuine bargain, mm-hmm. that they were getting the value for their dues. Mm-hmm. And so the incentives are just far more closely aligned mm-hmm. with workers themselves because workers themselves are leading it and are the ones that are paying for it and funding it and not necessarily the public purse, which has a different set of incentives. Now, what are the incentives for a union to graduate more apprentices and and replicate itself at a greater than replacement rate because you know you would imagine that that with the incentive structure that they have that they are incentivized to keep a tight labor pool and so to to not have a proliferation of of people with that given skill set because it could drive down wages in a heavily deindustrialized country where we where we want to be producing more here is that not a tension between you know where we'd like to see things go in the long term and the the short to medium term interests of a given union? Yeah, yeah, that's a complex question. Um, I, the the I, I, the the straightforward answer here is that that unions are you know mostly concerned with retaining and growing their own membership, mm-hmm. and so the more people you graduate through your apprenticeship mm-hmm. program, the see, more so people the you see as okay. as, yeah. as 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 future potential members now. That's not to say that you want to grow the labor supply by importing a bunch of cheap, unskilled labor, uh, or even skilled labor for that mm-hmm. matter. And so this is why historically unions have been immigration restrictionists because they want to shrink the labor supply. But you kind of are given, um, just with sort of the growth of the American population, you already are given a natural labor supply, and it's about trying to build up your membership within that. That's the ultimate in, in interest and incentive of the union is growing its membership, which which increases its dues, which increases the level of activity that it can have, and it can create this uh, you know positive cycle. Um, but that's the incentive that they ultimately have. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you would necessarily see, certainly not in the early stages, incentives for unions to not want to graduate people through apprenticeship programs mm-hmm. especially in an era of declining membership i imagine right right so the, the the criticism i get even from people who might be primed to agree with this perspective you've laid out is a question of is and ought you know it's like okay in in an ideal scenario this is how things ought to be it would it would be sort of 
um, you know, positively beneficial in a cyclical way for the right. Uh, but uh, the status quo is that unions are very left wing, and yep. the sectors where we see the most proliferation of unions right now seems to be Starbucks baristas yep. and uh, uh, journalistic outlets. <laughs> <laughs> These do not seem like the 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 basis of natural conservatism and this is an exceptionally uh, stupid uh, political um, uh, politically naive uh, way to go about pursuing political change what say you Wells uh, the politically naive approach is what the unions are doing mm-hmm. um, uh, we've done polling at American Compass um, that just asks workers if given the opportunity would they vote to organize their workplace most say no and when you ask them why they say no, the number one reason, at least according to our polling, is politics, political involvement of unions. They don't want their dues going to it, and they often don't support it. Um, we live in a pretty politically divided country, and I don't think that it's a winning strategy for the labor movement to adopt an increasingly left-wing, especially cultural posture, uh, if they want to genuinely grow their membership. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not surprised that they're moving up into um, white collar occupations. One, because you're increasingly seeing a certain subset of white collar workers who are downwardly mobile and probably are looking for some bargaining power and leverage. And unions have, have, have historically provided that and probably will continue to. But also because these are the people that happen to hold left wing cultural positions. And so unions now have an incentive to uh, adopt more and more vocal uh, left wing politics. Um, that's not a winning proposition for labor unions. I think it's a recipe for failure mm-hmm. and decline. And so I think my own view, at least, is that it's not necessarily for the right to champion some reinvigoration of organized labor. Um, I definitely hope that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's more important and what's the much bigger question is whether organized labor and union bosses will wake up, look at the clock, and realize that it's actually time to rethink their strategy. And that begins by rethinking labor law in some meaningful ways, because in some respects, their hands are tied in, time, in terms of the types of or, or, the, the organizing models that are available to them and so on. They have to realize that they're going to have to innovate if they want to regrow uh, and, and, and go back to, uh, to their former strength. Mm. So your position is not what it's been often character, caricatured to be, which is that you know the right should just become the full-throated supporter of unionization as it exists in America, and hope and pray that you know we have this you know great Volk that come up and start voting Republican. It's that the batons in the union's hands, but we should not be pretextually, pre-politically opposed to organized labor per se, and create some public policy avenues through which novel forms of collective bargaining could occur. And potentially create new nodes of power. Yeah, I, I think there are essentially two plays. One is offer genuine pro-worker reforms to labor law um, that you can argue on the merits and know in a lot of cases that uh, the establishment, labor unions, will oppose them. And then try to get them on the record as to why they oppose them. And probably has very little to do with the interests of workers and probably a whole lot more to do with the interests of union bosses. Mm-hmm. Give me like one just discrete example of a policy like that. So for instance, um, this past Congress, um, Senator Rubio and Congressman Banks introduced a bill called the TEAM Act. 
And what it essentially did was created what they called employee involvement organizations. It's it, it's similar to what they have in Germany and called works councils, where essentially you know, you know, workers and management can come together to solve workplace issues. It gives workers a voice in workplace decisions um, where they otherwise wouldn't have a say. It also included Why, why do you need a legal structure to do this kind of thing? Uh, because currently it's prohibited by federal law. Really? Sections of national labor law prohibit um, workers and management from working together um, within a within a bargaining unit. Um, and so there's a subsection 82 of uh, National Labor Relations Act that prohibits this kind of activity. You still see some experimentation within the private sector, but it's technically against the law. These organizations would also have, at least according to the Team Act, uh, the the ability, not required, but the ability um, for some companies determined by their market cap uh, to uh, elect to have a representative on their corporation's board um, as a way to you know, meaningfully rep, rep, try to represent workers on corporate boards. Um, this was bashed by people on the left uh, as being uh, a ridiculous proposal that didn't meaningfully increase worker power and so on. All this bill does is create one new option that workers can choose. No one's saying you can't have a union, you have to have an employee involvement org. It's just creating a new option. And so conservatives should, I think, be outlining alternatives to unions that are genuinely pro-worker, that I think take some of the best lessons learned from Western Europe, where some countries, I'm thinking of Sweden, I'm thinking of Germany, where there are very good, entirely voluntary, essentially right to work models of organized labor that could work pretty well in the United States with certain tweaks and adaptations, because we aren't, we aren't, thank God, Western Europe, right? <laughs> um, and provide those alternatives and watch labor unions protest because they'd prefer to keep a monopoly on the forms of organizing you can have in the United States. The other thing we should do is I do think we should find places of common ground where unions are doing the right thing, where the traditional organized labor movement is doing the right thing. And we should, um, I think, champion uh, some, some of those efforts. I think in particular of some of the few Republicans a few weeks back um, when, when, when Congress was voting to impose uh, the agreement that that, that 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 the rail union bosses and representatives had had struck um, with rail companies um, on workers, despite the workers voting to reject the, the early deal. Um, you know, Senators Rubio, Senators Hawley, uh, Cruz, um, siding with workers. Um, that wasn't just to score political points, um, but was to get this issue substantively right and say no. This isn't a role for government to impose a privately negotiated deal on workers. Um, and beyond that, it, it, it really should be for, for workers to hammer out and negotiate for themselves. And as Republicans, we should side with workers' needs and interests with workers' voice. There are a few places where I think we can find a way, and it's not always going to be against unions, to side with workers in traditional unions. And we should look for those opportunities, and we should be very vocal about them. But that does not mean siding with big labor every opportunity we're given very interesting Wells, where can people keep up with everything that you're working on at american compass and read 
vastly more than we could ever get into on an episode of this show on these topics. Well, they can go to americancompass.org. Um, you can search our library, new and improved, revised and expanded. The website looks sweet. Thanks. We're very excited about it. A lot of work went into it from uh, the team. Uh, so a whole compendium, not only of my writing, Oren's writing, the rest of our staff, but a ton of other contributors we have at American Compass. That's, that's americancompass.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Well C. King. Very good. Well, thank you, Wells, for coming on the podcast and for um, writing all the stuff that I have voraciously read for the last two years. Thanks for having me on. This is a pleasure. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And if you did listen through to the very end, I can disclose to you that our final episode of the year is going to be another North Carolinian. Tune in in just a couple days for one chief of staff to President Donald Trump, Mark Meadows who spent 45 whole minutes with us in studio talking about his experiences in Congress and in the White House. Uh, but that's next week. This week, uh, if you want to read more about all of the issues that Wells talked about, you can go to AmericanMoment.org slash AmCannon, A-M-C-A-N-O-N. There you can find a lot of the pieces that Wells and his boss, Warren Cass, have written over the years that we really liked, um, as well as the backlog of this show. Uh, we had on Warren. It was one of the most popular episodes of this show. Uh, Julius, someone is, who's frequently collaborated with as well. Go check those episodes out. Uh, rate and review this podcast. It really does help us. If you're on YouTube, please do subscribe. Uh, turns out that 70% of you who watch on YouTube are not subscribers. Please fix that. It terrifies me and keeps me up at night that this is not the case. Uh, we're extremely grateful that the listenership of this show keeps growing every week, and we hope to see you very soon for the season finale of Moment of Truth. Thank you guys as always. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.